It's Friday the 25th of November. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's headlines, COP27 is over, what were the outcomes? And lots of news at home. There's an energy windfall tax, offshore wind plans, rising EV running costs, a biodiversity report and news on the Climate Action Plan. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn. And the COP circus has ended for another year. We'll be discussing that and lots of climate news in Ireland. I'm joined this week by Anna Pringle. Anna, how are you keeping? I'm good, Dara. Thanks. Sounds like an action-packed show today. Yeah, yeah. Lots, lots to discuss. And to discuss it, we are joined by Tom Spencer. So, Tom, you might remember we interviewed last season. He runs a consumer advice website called Irish EVs, looking at electric vehicles in the context of the climate crisis. And the website also has a blog where Tom discusses a range of environmental issues. Tom, welcome back to the Climate Alarm Clock. Hey, thanks for having me back again. It's it's great to be back on with you. Yeah, no, delighted to have you here. Really looking forward to our chat today. Tom, before we get into the news roundup, we're trying to ask all our guests a little bit about their own climate journeys. So I suppose, can you... Give us a little snapshot of your climate journey. How did you come to the issue of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess like everyone of, of our generation, um, there was a bit of it at school, a little bit of education about it, you know, what, what it was in essence, perhaps the physics of the thing. Um, but for me, probably it was around university. I started to understand it a bit more. It became more of a topic amongst other students. And then my first job out of university was working as the editor for a scientific publication. So it was disseminating the latest research from EU-funded projects. So I got to work with researchers across Europe who were doing all sorts of um, research from quantum physics through to climate action. Um, so really, that was the first place I sort of understood really the severity of the crisis, um, how broad it was and how urgent it was. It wasn't this thing that, you know, I've been taught in school would affect our great, great, great grandchildren. And really, we didn't need to worry about for, for now. Great background to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really, so you really got a, a holistic picture of it, um, which I guess leads us to our next question then. What do you call this when you talk about it is there any particular term that we use so when we Cara Carney on she called it a disconnection crisis and last week Lauren Boland says she interchangeably uses climate change and climate crisis what what do you call it and why disconnection crisis is such a great way of putting it because how can you sum up the the severity the urgency and the whole of this crisis you know and the knock-on effects um when I write about it, I tend to call it the climate crisis. For me, that kind of conveys the urgency and the severity of the situation. I feel like climate change is sort of almost feels passive or, or feels like it's sort of natural almost, you know, there's this thing and the climate is changing. And that sort of overlooks the inherent role that humans are playing in driving it and that we can play in stopping it. Um, but I'm always conscious that climate crisis, as much as I feel that that's the best term for us to use, ignores the biodiversity aspect of it and, and can also avoid the sort of the human health impact of it as well. So, yeah, defining the nomenclature of what we're talking about is really tough. And yeah, I think climate crisis is the best I've hit on so far. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you on that point about the biodiversity crisis. And, I, you know, I'm trying to use environmental crisis or, or ecological crisis as much as I can because because those two things are linked so much. Um, thanks for that, Tom. With that, then, shall we get into our news roundup and the first story? I'm glad it's the last week we're going to be discussing it, to be honest. Uh, COP27 is over. Uh, it finished up, as always, it ran late. It finished on Sunday. 
Um, any thoughts or reactions to it all? Well, what were we saying about a crisis and needing a lot of action? Um, so, I mean, I suppose the on the positive side, to start with the positive, um, the loss and damage agreement has been welcomed and especially has been welcomed, I noticed, from activists in the global south because it's the first time that there has actually has been an agreement acknowledging loss and damage caused to vulnerable countries by climate change. So that's a positive. And then, but, I'll let you guys come in with the but. Yeah, so I suppose just to recap on what the loss and damage fund is, it's a fund that wealthy wealthy nations are expected to contribute to to provide compensation to countries in the global south who are affected by climate impacts that can't be adapted to so it's sort of compensation um and it's been a really content but it doesn't exist yet though yeah so i mean it's it's a fund but it's actually the decision was to establish a fund and it doesn't say specifically where the funds will come from in the in the agreement so exactly so it's like everything with cop it is a step forward but it is it's nowhere near enough in terms of the speed that's needed. It's also nowhere near enough in terms of actually ascribing responsibility to people and to put in to put a number on it, you know, to actually say how much money is going to be given by whom and when. So a tiny step in the right direction, but no actual meat on the bones of it, I would say. So I was reading actually Bill McKibben, who's he's very good on all this, and um, he's an American writer uh, about climate justice. And he put it as a moral argument. He said that the moral argument couldn't be more straightforward. He said, and he was talking about Americans in particular, but he said Americans have produced almost a quarter of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. So therefore, a quarter of the damage should be on our tab. But that's not necessarily the way it's going to play out. And then just to give a, give a sort of point of reference, the initial estimate of the damage from Pakistan's summer of flooding is about $40 billion dollars. Wow. So that's the scale of the loss and damage that we're looking at. And I don't think the fund will get close to that. The other aspect of it as well is we've made no progress on ending fossil fuel use, let alone new exploration and, and new drilling. That that fund will need to grow exponentially to deal with the crises as they grow exponentially. You know, having having that loss and damage is there is essential for climate justice. And we, we need to have that in place. You know, it, it feels like very little action if we're not actually stopping the issue itself. It it just feels like it's this sort of piecemeal here, you can have this, go away. And, you know, you look at some of the, the you know, even the smaller nations, the island nations particularly in the global south, they w- simply won't exist. Some of them will be underwater right. by the time, you know, we might actually take the action that's necessary. So, yeah, as with so many COP actions, it doesn't really feel like any progress, unfortunately. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And and the reason that there wasn't any progress on reducing emissions zone is at least in part because of the fossil fuel companies and produ- fossil fuel producing nations that were there in force and having a big impact on the output of the COP. I'm sure, I'm sure this has been a topic of discussion before, but I think when you announce in the week or so building up to, to the event that Coca-Cola is going to be the lead sponsor of the yeah. event, it hardly mm-hmm. engenders a, you know, a sense of trust. You know, no, yeah. exactly. I, I, I my think, feeling yeah. about COP now is much like FIFA running a World Cup. It, it doesn't feel, it feels like the it's skewed in favour of those who have money and influence rather than Absolutely. And guess where COP28 is going to be, mm-hmm. speaking of the World Cup, 
in the United Arab Emirates next year. So I can't imagine that they'll be more progressive as a COP chair, but who knows? Yeah, we've talked about how many fossil fuel lobbyists are were at COP this year. So I don't imagine that's going to be improved next year. So yeah, as with every other COP, I mean, it got people talking, you know, there was good grassroots stuff around it. And that for me is where COP does have a purpose and does have a meaning is that it kind of brings activists together energizes people a bit a little bit of progress but nowhere near enough and and whether cop is actually fit for purpose i would i would really question uh having kept a close eye on the last few of them can we move on from cop (laughs) any final words or thoughts yes let's do please um great so, so yeah, I suppose a big story that came up in Ireland this week is that there's going to be a windfall tax for energy companies. Yeah, and that Eamon Ryan came back from Copper. He actually played, it seems like, quite a constructive role in the negotiations. Um, but he came back from COP and announced a windfall energy tax in line with what's been done around the EU. Um, and it's expected to raise quite a range. Like they're saying it could raise anywhere between 340 million euro and 1.9 billion euro um, in in windfall tax, which is hard to fathom how it's that much of a range. But I think that's partly because of market fluctuations in energy prices. It's hard to predict. Just on it, what... What is a windfall tax? Thank you, Dara, for always bringing me back to explaining things. Um, So basically, this has been talked about for quite a while since the energy prices have gone up and since the energy companies have been making such profits on the prices going up. And there has been a move afoot in the EU, the UK and elsewhere to tax some of the excessive profits that have been made. So where companies are making more profit just because the price is going up, let's take some back in tax and help alleviate the energy crisis by doing that. So that's kind of what the windfall tax is. So for example, in Ireland, there will be a cap on market revenues of non-gas electricity generators. So now you quickly go non-gas who's that that's actually mostly a lot of that is wind farm operators so you kind of wonder why are we taxing wind farm operators but actually wind farm operators are benefiting because they their cost of their cost of generating electricity once they're up and established their cost of generating electricity is low the wind blows and they've got you know low additional costs so they're but they're benefiting from the price of electricity without doing anything to benefit from that. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, I think part of the reason why it's happening is because a weird sort of quirk in the electricity market is that electricity is charged based on the most expensive source of electricity. So, because gas is so expensive, other providers have to sort of charge the same amount. So, because of that, wind that's much cheaper to produce are making these huge profits. Um, so it is welcome to see, uh, especially because the revenue that's raised is going to go back into supporting people that are struggling to meet their energy costs. So that is definitely a positive. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just about wind either. There will be what's called a solidarity contribution, which will apply to companies active in fossil fuel production and refining as well. So, um, so they will also have their taxable profits will be will be taxed more to generate this income as well. And one of the things on a personal level that I was quite disappointed to see as well is in the press release, um, 
Minister Ryan was talking about the impact of the invasion of Ukraine on energy costs. Now, obviously, that's had a huge impact. But we keep seeing this with a number of governments across Europe. Oh, the Ukrainian crisis is this causing an issue here. If we'd have taken the action that we should have taken a decade ago, we wouldn't be so dependable on oil or gas from other nations. And, and really, exactly. we should be investing in wind. We should be investing in solar um, and sort of lessening our, our, our need for these fossil fuels. Yeah, completely. And and then the funds, he, he's saying that the funds will be used to help protect people from energy costs. But then there was an article today suggesting that there's a memo going around government saying the funds might actually be used to pay some of the measures that have already been introduced. So it's hard to know if this is additional windfall tax that will be helpful or not. And it's like everything, the proof's in the pudding. We'll have to look in, it's supposed to run to 2023. We'll have to have a look and see how much was actually generated by this windfall tax. Who knows? I'm going to be stupidly optimistic here. And I'm going to say the fact that we now have a windfall tax is a major step forward. If, for example, next year when COP comes around and activists say a windfall tax on fossil fuel companies should be used to pay for a loss and damage fund, governments can't turn around and say a windfall tax is impossible because we have one now. So I think it's a really, really significant step. The fact that a windfall tax now exists even if it's mainly wind companies that are actually paying the windfall tax for now, it exists. So governments can't turn around and say it's not possible anymore. So I think that is a really yeah, that, that, big positive to take out from this. That's a very good point, Dara. And it's also EU-wide, so that's important as well, because this has been done under agreed um, approach at the EU level. So, so I think that's a very good point. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, it happens occasionally, Dara. Come on. Yeah, yeah. A bit of, uh, yeah, I'm, su- I'm surprised at myself bringing, bringing the optimism here. Linked then, I suppose, to, to energy price increases is maybe a bit of your area of expertise, Tom, in that the prices for charging electric vehicles at public charging points is going up in the next month. Going up significantly. Yeah, uh, you know, to some extent, this was always inevitable. If if the cost of energy is going up, this was going to happen. Um, you know, I, there are two sides to the story. One is the vast majority of people have always and will always charge at home. It's where it's cheapest. It's where it's sort of least carbon intense. And it happens while you're asleep. So it's really easy and convenient. Um, obviously, there are people predominantly in, in cities who might be in sort of apartments where that's a lot harder for them. They are more reliant on the public network. So up front, I would say, if you're already thinking about switching to an EV because of the air pollution that's caused by electric, caused by internal combustion engine cars, this shouldn't put you off an EV at all. They're still cheaper to run. They still offer all the benefits of reduced air pollution and obviously the knock-on benefits that it has for human and planetary health. The issue for me is that ESB is a, you know, this is a, a... public service a public company and yet so often there is a a real lack of transparency now often i'm contacted them to try and see why you know what's going on behind the scenes because we often don't get told until something has changed that it will change there's no heads up and that's not helpful now what i want to see really is if you're putting the service cost up as we might see with a a mobile phone service provider what are the benefits that i'm going to get as a result Um, currently we're not seeing any benefits in terms of reporting issues if you turn up at a charger and it's not working what can you do about that that needs to be addressed 
there's no improvements for accessibility. We currently have four wheelchair accessible electric car charging points in Ireland run by ESB. And for me, that four, it's awful. Four, four in the whole country. There will be four by the end of next year. But, but I mean, that seems like, sorry to interrupt, but that seems like a no brainer. The, the public charging points are being put in from scratch. So why is it hard? Why not just accommodate people? It should be something that's that's built in from the very beginning of this. and Exactly. Partly from an accessibility perspective, because we should be catering to all users, and partly because we don't want to spend money we don't need to retrofitting things that should have had it in the first place. You know, for, for able-bodied people, if I rock up at a charger, I can't think if I've ever been to one that has a canopy, for example. You know, the weather no. at the moment is awful. Having protection from the elements is is good for able-bodied people but if you're in a wheelchair that process can be significantly longer the cables are incredibly heavy you know that can be hard for for you or i but if you have a particular requirement that can be really tough to deal with and there's also a safety element built into this they are often in the very corners of a car park they are poorly lit they're very poor you know, report ways for reporting issues um and if you feel intimidated you physically have to get out of the car to unplug it I, these are things that should be addressed and I don't think we should wait until there is an issue to address them. Again, I, I wouldn't say these are things that should necessarily put people off the change. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And also, they're not intuitive. <laughs> None of the, I mean, it takes a while to... I, I have had, because we, we drive an EV, and I've had to show people regularly how to actually get it to work um, because they're just not intuitive. And, like, and I learned the hard way one of the one of the things I actually like about uh, EV driving is the amount of times you actually talk to someone else. I know, you know yeah. When you fill up for <laughs> petrol or diesel, you never really stop and talk to anyone. If, if someone talked to you, you'd almost find it weird. Um, you know that. Is, I know you have great chats. Yeah, and it's born out of necessity because <laughs> it's the company right now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the companies aren't addressing it and and you're right even things like the screen size there isn't a consideration of color blindness there isn't a consideration of people who might need text-to-speech even uh, they're failing on so many fronts and they're not being held accountable um and and often inquiries about esb can fall between is it department of transport or the department of climate action you get pinged around different departments as well yeah. so yeah it's it's not particularly great news even if it was inevitable and what's your take, um, Tom, on the the target, the one million electric cars target that now we've heard is not going to be kept? Um, what, what's your take on that? <laughs> I think to to some extent the one million um, was kind of plucked out of the air to address the government's shortfalls elsewhere. How you know this yep. seems relatively easy. How can we make up the numbers? I mean, the first thing to say is. The one million wasn't electric cars, it included hybrid vehicles. And for me, you know, a hybrid vehicle is a fossil fuel vehicle. Yes. Um, so I, I'm not surprised because they set an ambitious target that really didn't mean anything. Um, you know, I think, first of all, it's categorical to say public transport and active travel are infinitely better for human and planetary health than even electric vehicles or, or any yep. any private car. Where I think there is an issue is that the government is ignoring that we have a higher rural population than the majority of the EU and that people are still buying internal combustion engines hand over fist. So I, I looked at the SIMI stats for this year, um, Society of Industry Motor Vehicle something. Yeah. Um, uh, so 104,000 vehicles have been sold this year. Um, that's up for 103,000 for the whole of 2021. Now only 15,200 of these EVs. So that means that 86% of new cars wow. sold this year are entirely or partly 
fueled by fossil fuels. Um, but, you know, I'm in East Clare. There was a, a brilliant um, article written by Hannah Daly who talked about trying to go to her work. I believe she's at UCC, trying to go to her work without using the transport, electric car. Yeah. It took so much longer. She was sort of left stranded yeah. for periods and it cost a lot more. And sort of until we, we realised that we're not going to make progress. And, and for me, as with all forms of climate action, it's not one or the other. It's not we spend on bikes and yeah. spend on buses or we spend on EVs. It's both. And if, yeah. if 86% of people are still buying new cars that are powered by fossil fuel vehicles, funding funding cycling routes and funding better public transport isn't going to change it's that pointless. without the mindset yeah. change. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, it needs to be much more expensive, yeah. Yeah, I'm personally glad that the 1 million EV target is going to be removed from the Climate Action Plan. I think, as you said, Tom, it was always just a number plucked out of the air and a stronger focus on active travel and public transport is absolutely what we need. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a positive. Um, I suppose that does so lead us on... we're going to talk about how we're doing on our Climate Action Plan, yeah. Yeah, so there's been an update on Ireland's progress in their climate action plans and have found that 23% of the actions due for completion by the end of September were missed. Um, so nearly a quarter of the targets and actions in the climate action plan have not been met. And, and guess which government department was the worst performer? Go on, tell us, Anna. It was the Department of Environment, Climate and Communications that only delivered on 41% of their actions on time. Yeah. Now, to be fair, they've been busy. Yeah, still. yeah. no, I mean, I, I find that a little bit of a misleading stat, uh, to be honest, because I I'd, had I'd, I'd a quick look at stuff. Um, and for the example, the, the Department of Education had 15 actions. They completed them all, but... A good few of them are just publishing Go things. Go Norma. So, you, a good so few. kudos to Norma then, Dara? Are you going to give kudos to Norma for that? <laughs> um, a, good few of, <laughs> a good few of those actions were just publishing things, um, which it says they're published. I haven't been able to find them. But also that's not actually getting emissions down. That's just a plan. Whereas there is, you know, some some sort of very robust actions within the Department of Climate Action that are much more difficult to complete. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but that's then also really disappointing because some very high-impact actions have been delayed, including plans for managing the environmental footprint of beef and dairy, um, a strategy for the uptake of electric vehicles has been delayed, um, a strategy for the haulage sector, uh, an approach to retrofitting commercial buildings and, and an appropriate model for the development and ownership of district heating systems. So these are huge, huge parts of our plans for getting emissions down that have been delayed. Um, yeah. And we haven't even fi- hasn't even finalised Ireland's long term climate strategy. I mean, but a lot of this, is, if I read that list of high impact actions, it's all strategies and plans, as and opposed to action. I think that's what's so worrying is the government generally in its climate sort of action has this sort of dog ate my homework attitude, 
But when we actually look at what's left of the homework, it's a bullet point list of <laughs> what we're going to do. It's not the essay that you've written. It's just this is what the essay will be about. And, you know, it's it, on the one hand, it's terrifying not to even have that. But when yeah. you look at it in, in more in depth, you know, beyond the sort of quantitative, there is no qualitative value. We're so far behind already. We're sort of playing catch up on borrow time that we don't have. And, and on the one hand, you want to laugh and the other, you want to cry. It just... It, it feels like a bit of a joke at this point. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. more like the dog. The dog ate my homework schedule, not my homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I was very, very optimistic about the windfall tax either. So I'm going to supplement that by now, being Dara. incredibly cynical. And no, I just, I just totally agree with with what you said, Tom. That it's just these plans for making plans, um, and we do need all of that. You know, we do need all this massive legislation and this huge change of approach to do things like retrofitting and to do things like putting in plans for beef and dairy. But can we achieve any of this without treating the climate crisis as an emergency? I know we were talking about emergency earlier, but, you know, really give it the urgency and the resourcing and the priority that it needs because too many people, particularly too many of our politicians, don't get it. They still don't get it. It's yeah. still an add-on to the things that they're already doing rather than being a central component of what they need to be doing. So having seen all the Climate Action Plan stuff and the delays that we're seeing, it did just make me quite cynical that people can say the right things. Michal Martin referenced the speech that he made in Egypt when reacting to these delays saying, you know, well, I said that we need to take more urgency and Leo Varadkar said we need to ramp up our action but they've been saying that for so long and they're still not doing it and I just feel that they don't get it they don't get it yeah um or, or it's it's the appearance of action like we were saying and so but the climate action plan is going to be updated now and I think that's delayed as well actually isn't it um, yeah it should have the, been out uh, the, it should have been out before cop um yeah, that was the aim. So it's a few weeks later than it was last year. So we're going to have yet another climate action plan, which I think is our third or fourth well, one. To be fair, that has always been the plan. That it's it's released and updated. It's released and updated annually, so you can see the progress and you can hopefully ratchet up ambition every year. Um, so I'm not I'm not particularly critical of that. Where I would be critical, though, is the fact that the climate action plan is very much targeting emissions reductions only. Then there's a separate sort of climate adaptation framework, how we're going to adapt to climate change. And then we saw a biodiversity report from the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change coming out um, this week as well, that once again had some amazing... Uh, measures and recommendations in it but it's all being siloed it's all separate and what we need to do is look at these things together look at our biodiversity loss look at our emissions look at the impacts that climate change is going to bring bring these all together and make them the central part of our governance because if we're just tackling them in silos as these little add-on issues we're not going to get anything done there was a great example of that, I think, in this in this biodiversity plan, where they were talking about establishing biodiversity officers or whole units, and like, that has huge potential. But the problem for me is, I don't think we have the framework in place for those officers or units to make an impact. If you look, for example, at the Climate Action Delivery Board, they didn't bother to meet in 2020. So who would these officers or these whole units report to if there was an urgent action that needed to take place? You know, 
it's it's great to throw out the idea of we'll have these people, but who do they report to? What will they be responsible for? These things aren't well defined, and we we just don't have the time for half baked ideas that we'll sort of come back and review in five years again and say, oh, we didn't do that, but we've got a new plan now. But it's also about a theme that we keep coming back to here. It's also about connecting the dots. Yeah. So, you know, for example, the committee, the, the biodiversity committee made great recommendations about re-wetting bogs and so on. At the same time, um, Chagas is advising um, farmers to put in drainage, you know, and, and so you have to, so we have so, to look at how it all joins up and makes so, sense. Yeah. So, I mean, the drainage thing, in fairness, that's because of the Arterial Drainage Act in 1945 that actually basically requires, um, basically requires the OPW to improve land by draining it. Um, so this is this relic of a time when we did need more agricultural land to feed ourselves that is, has hammered biodiversity and is now at a stage where it doesn't even need to be done. So one of the recommendations in that report was to um, to review the Arterial Drainage Act. So yeah, in fairness, Good. in fairness to in fairness to Chagask, um, that's not that's not on them. Um, okay. Uh, one bit of one bit of good news. Let's have some good news uh, before we before we move on. Is that Bordnamona have announced a partnership with wind developer Ocean Winds to plan and build a number of offshore wind projects. Uh, so that was reported on RTE this week, and the initial plan is to hopefully develop two offshore wind projects in the east and southeast of the country which by 2030 could provide enough renewable power to power 2.1 million homes, um, which is a really um, amazing, I find that just such a staggering, um, staggering statistic. 2 million homes that could be powered by these two wind farms by 2030. Yeah, I mean, offshore wind is a game changer for us um if we can get it installed quickly enough it's a game changer and it's not as intermittent as onshore wind either yeah i mean um i i think it's brilliant here in east clare um you know there's there's a big debate raging at the moment we're, we're having some onshore wind installed not not too far from where we live um i think it's always important with offshore to to sort of explain that it isn't going to necessarily place on onshore in its entirety you know you have to consider how much energy is lost between the point of generation and the point of use um and with offshore that that can be quite considerable but i think brilliant to, if we can power that many homes from from one of these developments then certainly looking at several more I, th- <laughs> I would i would personally welcome that i mean obviously we need to look at how we reduce consumption and you know obviously things like reduced data center usage of course here in ireland um but i think i would like to look at this as the positive news that it hopefully is and um yeah and say, more, yeah please yeah. <laughs> bring it on yeah no i mean I, I i'm the same i think it you know obviously huge 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 considerations need to be taken in relation to biodiversity with any of these offshore wind developments and that's something where biodiversity legislation really needs to get ahead of the game on this to make sure we've marine protected areas and then also in terms of you know if we have this renewable energy but we don't democratize our energy supply you know if it's still big multinationals that are making most of the profits off this and we're not seeing super cheap electricity for the general public it's not 
quite the win that it could be, but 2.1 million homes from two <laughs> from yeah. two projects. I, I Yeah, I'm going to choose to see the positive in this one <laughs> for now, at least. Agree. Shall we move on to our not climate story then? Yeah, this is less positive, unfortunately. Um, so just for context, we're going to talk about the protests that we've seen this week in East Wall. So there is an old ESB office building in East Wall, in East Wall Road, um, that has been repurposed to provide accommodation for people seeking international protection, so asylum seekers coming into the country. And the first group of people were moved in there last week. About 80 to 100 men were moved in. And according to um, the department, there was plans to have about 300 people in total. Um, women and children, families would be moved in subsequently. Now, there's a whole question about whether an repurposed office building is suitable accommodation for anybody. Is that That's a different yeah, question. Yeah. Is, that's not what the protest was about. No, the protest... Well, I mean, the protest there. So, so there are some genuine concerns in the community that the community that this has happened without anybody in the community knowing about it. Um, there are genuine concerns about resources, services, etc. But the protests really focused on things like single men coming in here from the Middle East and Africa, and uh, the fact that they weren't vetted whatever that means. I mean, but that that phrase became a kind of catchphrase. These people aren't vetted. And, you know, I, ha I haven't been vetted to live here. So it was really depressing to see it. It was really depressing to see crowds of people on East Wall Road shouting, get them out, get them out. I mean, that's what they were chanting. So it was so depressing. And, yeah, I, you know, we are a nation of emigrants. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I emigrated. All Every generation of Irish people has emigrated mm. and and we've been economic migrants, you know, so we've done that yeah. and, we've be, and we've benefited from that as a country. So the fact that we would turn people away who are coming here at great personal cost and need protection is just depressing. I think, I think one of the things that really shocks me is, is the lack of compassion so we regularly see on Irish Twitter things like Ireland is full trending. Now, you know, as you can tell just from my accent, I'm a blow-in. Um, you know, there is an element of racism to it and you can't, it can't be denied. You know, when people say Ireland is full, they don't say that to me because my skin colour is white. That is often one of the first things that people are judged on. And like we... we I think there's I think there's actually something very thematic in today's show in our in our policy around direct provision. You know, we are supposed to be having a, a system to replace it. It is overdue and it is not in place, despite the number of human rights abuses that direct provision has has been linked with. And also by 2050, we're looking at 1.2 billion people as a minimum being displaced by the climate crisis. Um, we don't have a system here that is compassionate and that offers people the, the shelter and the love and the compassion that they need. And that is only going to get worse. And I think, you know, uh, Anna, you were talking earlier about sort of, um, this perhaps was even before the show, that the compensation that someone like America might have to offer because of its role in historic emissions. We have to acknowledge that as a nation, 
the average Irish person has a carbon footprint that's about three times that of the average person on Earth and 55% higher than the average person in the EU. We are not without blame when it comes to emissions and we should be doing our part to, to offer people sort of a, a safe haven from the climate crises that we're, we're causing and involved in. Um, it's it's yeah. really yeah. sad to see. Yeah, and I think, Tom, you know, that is that is why this is a climate change story. We are going to see so much... More. Uh, so much uh, migration globally as a result of climate change and we need to prepare for this in all kinds of ways so I, but I would like to say that there is a, I mean, I've been trying to think about how do you respond to that and I think the way we need to respond is being positive and welcoming and being as compassionate as we can be so I would like to say that an action you can take is um there's a group that actually operates in Fairview in about 500 metres from where the protest happened called Sanctuary Runners. We go to Fairview Park Run every Saturday morning and it's Irish people from the community running with people who are asylum seekers, migrants, new to the country, just in friendship and solidarity, run, walk, talk, volunteer, whatever. And it's just a hugely positive thing. And so what I would say to all of our listeners is if you can, look for elements, look for groups like that in your own community that you can just show up and show some solidarity and some friendship to people who need a hand of friendship given it, held out to them. Organisations like Massey, M-A-S-I and Doris mm -hmm. are also really great charities if people wanted to sort of support. They work with everything from... You know, especially around Christmas, I'm sure they'll be doing some more drives about sort of essential foodstuffs and, they and are, yeah. personal items. Um, but they also do things like uh, fight court cases to try and change the law and make sure there is more compassion and sort of fewer human rights abuses as well. So there are two others that, that might be of interest to people. Great. And we'll put links in the show notes to all of those for anyone who wants to show a hand of friendship. Great stuff. Before we go then, uh, we'll do our quick notice board, a five-minute fly-around of the things that we didn't get to discuss. Um, there was one lovely story I saw from Wales that uh, this Saturday coming, every household is offered a free tree for a collection. So a uh, tree being provided to every household in Wales, there's different collection points. People can go pick up the tree and plant it, which I think is just a lovely little initiative. Right. Um, Not quite so lovely. I saw that. I saw that uh, Larry Goodman, our favourite beef baron, is now funding drilling for oil in um, off the south coast. So he's just put forty million of his own well-earned money into um, helping unlock a cork oil field. Um, <coughs> wow. <laughs> talk about the, talk <laughs> yeah, we whole show on that. Talk about the cartoon villain. Um, one one other nice thing I'd like to point out is a uh, PhD findings from a guy called Steve Westlake. He posted to Twitter that looking at leadership in in adopting low carbon behavior, and it found that if le if leaders show leadership in taking low carbon actions, so with how they get around, with how they eat, with whatever, others tend to follow, and their credibility and approval skyrockets. So. Uh, as well as our leaders taking leadership when it comes to policy, we also need to see them um, leading low-carbon lifestyles, and that would have a huge impact on other people adopting those outcomes. So that was that was good to see. 
it's that positive contagion effect which is great to see yeah um in terms of events and actions there's a lovely build your bog knowledge how to restore a bog in running in clara bog on tuesday next and the GEAI are running a climate talk in Leitrim for any people concerned about climate change to go to um, also on Tuesday. In terms of actions that people can take, um, we've been talking about the climate action plan. Friends of the Earth have 12 recommendations they would like to see put into the climate action plan. So you can take their template and email your TD saying that you'd like to see certain measures put into the climate action plan. Um, and also, before we go, uh, just to make sure to check out <laughs> uh, Tom's website, Irish EVs. Um, amazing information there. Oh, yeah. I mean, can, can I just, yeah, there's, you've got loads of information about EVs. There's a great resource for anybody who's thinking about getting an EV. If you want to become an EV zealot like myself and Tom, um, there's lots of really good information there. I've found it very useful over the years of looking at it. And if anyone wants to get in touch, they can always email me, um, irishevguide at gmail.com. The idea is to be open and accessible. It's completely free. Um, we don't have any sponsors. We don't have any um, any bias other than my fear of the climate crisis. So uh, so come and ask questions or, or, or share any ideas that you have for, for articles. And um, yeah, everyone is welcome. I'm sure That's... Coca-Cola will be willing to sponsor you, Tom. <laughs> That's a brilliant... That is... has emailed. <laughs> that is a brilliant uh, poster slogan no bias other than my fear of the climate crisis um <laughs> really good uh tom thank you so much for joining us it's been absolutely great to have your insight and expertise with us here today thanks for having me a real pleasure to be here and, and keep up the good work i think we we need more more like this more conversations and more places people can go and listen and even before the show we were sort of lamenting, pre-lamenting the loss of Twitter and how useful that is for, for sharing climate uh, communications and, and inspiring people. So um, keep up the great work. It's, it's great to be on. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Always good to chat to you. Thank you, you too. And that's it for this week. So just a reminder to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter while it's still there at the Climate Alarm. If you Oh, and we're also on Mastodon now. Are we? At the Climate Alarm on Mastodon.ie. Mastodon. If you do like what we do, the best thing that you can do for us is to share the podcast with a friend or a family member and do make sure to review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. That's it for this week. We will be back to a cop free climate alarm clock next week. Until then, goodbye. Woohoo!